0: Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin, and over the next 90 minutes, you can participate in a panel discussion by people who have been affected by sepsis in a very direct way. We will start with a keynote on the health and well being of caregivers of sepsis patients by Margaret Heritage from Canada. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to Ray Schachter, who will be chairing the session to get going.
1: My name is Ray Schachter. I'm very pleased to be chair of this session of the 2016 World Sepsis Congress, the title of which is Panel Discussion by People Affected by Sepsis and Family Members. Our keynote speaker is Margaret Herrick, who I will introduce in a moment. The other five members of our panel are family members of patients who have tragically died from sepsis, and patients who have suffered from sepsis but have fortunately survived. I will introduce each of our panel members before they begin their presentations. I've been a member of the executive board of the Global Sepsis Alliance for three years and am myself a survivor of acute sepsis, miraculously beating the odds which were badly against me. I told my personal story on our webinar from last year but the experiences of the survivors and of my family are reflected in the stories which our panel members will present. My story is much in common with the stories you're about to hear. A healthy, thriving person, having extremely serious symptoms which are ignored or minimized by health professionals, extreme medical intervention, which in my case was successful in saving my life, debilitating lengthy and emotionally and financially costly recovery and ongoing health issues thereafter. Our panel will be exploring these issues. There will be an opportunity to ask questions through our chat line during and following each presentation and we will do our best to direct your questions to the appropriate panel member, time permitting. Uh, There will be one slide presentation only by our keynote speaker. At the end of the presentations, which will take in total approximately an hour, we will have an additional 15 minutes for questions and answers. This podcast, along with others in this webinar, will be available following the live broadcast to registrants and others. Stay tuned, watch the GSA website, and find the topic of your choice. I'll begin with the introduction of Margaret Herridge, who we're privileged to have as the presenter of the keynote. She is Professor of Medicine, Critical Care, and Respiratory Medicine at the Toronto General Hospital, University Health Network, University of Toronto. As part of her academic background and clinical training, including board certification in internal medicine, pulmonary, and critical care, Dr. Herge completed her epidemiological training at Channing Lab in Boston and has a master's degree in public health, from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Harris has focused her research on outcomes after critical illness, both in patients and their families over the past almost 20 years. She is a strong advocate for lay education about ICU outcomes and the need to incorporate formal ICU follow-up care into the usual care plan for critically ill patients and families. After all, we know critical illness affects the entire family. Her research in the interests include five-year outcomes after ARDS (acute respiratory distress syndrome), one-year outcomes after severe acute respiratory syndrome, and seven-day ventilated critically ill patients and their family caregivers. I, uh, Dr. Hirsch has uh, published editorials and. Two landmark papers on outcomes after ARDS, and is a frequent international speaker on outcomes. She may also want to talk to you about the RECOVER program in her keynote. Margaret, uh, may I turn the session over to you now?
2: Thank you very much, uh, Ray, and thank you for the very kind introduction, and it is really a great uh, personal and, and professional honor to be able to speak to this esteemed audience today and through a really global um, outreach, and which is, is very novel, and it really is my great privilege to be part of this. I'm going to talk for the next 10 minutes or so on the health and well-being of caregivers of sepsis patients. And I'm very uh, I'm really, again, very honored to be able to highlight the fact that critical illness is a family event. It's a patient event, but it's a family event, and the caregivers, in many instances, have been the very uh, long-suffering, you know, uh, co-sufferers, if I could use that word, um, in the context of a critical illness and regrettably without a strong voice and without any explicit acknowledgement of what they're going through and without formalized help. So I'm happy to be able to speak about this today. I want to talk about mood disorders in families, in particular today, and also how to meet uh, these needs through perhaps a more longitudinal approach I wanted to start this session by framing uh, the different and, and uh, varied needs over time in patients and families and talking about uh, a 44-year-old woman who was part of our ARDS uh, study many years ago and uh, uh, who was a teacher and entirely healthy, uh, hospitalized with pneumococcal pneumonia. Uh, developed very severe acute respiratory distress syndrome and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. She spent approximately one month in the intensive care unit, required renal replacement therapy or dialysis for several weeks, had two episodes of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and ultimately was tracheostomized. She spent 48 days on the ward, about a week in inpatient rehab, mostly because she was fairly young, um, three weeks in outpatient rehab. She lost 30 pounds in weight, mostly muscle mass, was profoundly weak in a generalized way, had contractures. She herself developed a major depressive disorder and was unable to return to work um, as a teacher for about two years, and this was mostly because of her weakness, residual fatigue, and also because of a very debilitating mood disorder. Germaine to this topic, her husband developed a very severe mood disorder as well and developed a lot of uh, difficulty with um, uh, difficulties within their marriage, and their marriage broke down and they were separated. Their children also were profoundly affected. Uh, one of the children also developed a uh, major depressive disorder um, and uh, missed an entire year of school because of this. So this is the sort of collateral damage that we're talking about that really has largely gone unaddressed and needs to become part of our care plan. Patients have many varied physical and mental health and cognitive challenges, but their families have this journey, are on this journey with them, and they also get sick too, uh, sick from the chronic stress, the fatigue, and all of the attendant issues that were part of their loved one's critical illness. There has been a significant amount of literature published to date on caregiver burden and the sequelae that caregivers sustain after an episode of critical illness. There are many important leaders who have done this work for several decades. And uh, some of these leaders uh, include uh, Mark Siegel who Uh, published some early work in critical care medicine. Uh, A very important group, the FAMIREA group, F-A-M-I-R-E-A, led by our colleague, our esteemed colleague, Dr. Elie Azoulay, have published seminal papers on caregiver outcomes in critical illness as have uh, Christina Jones, uh, Richard Griffiths, who are really pioneers in this area for many uh, years now. And uh, patients we understand, uh, the caregivers, pardon me, of patients we do understand have important symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and may develop depressive uh, symptoms as well. Uh, And this involves uh, lifestyle disruption, employment reduction, compromised uh, health-related quality of life, in many respects comparable to that sustained by uh, those caregivers of stroke and uh, patients with uh, dementia. Uh, informal caregiver burden is associated with sepsis, with ARDS, with Uh, patients who have spent a long time on mechanical ventilation, and this can be as short as several days, extending to many weeks. The caregivers uh, may report lifestyle restrictions which continue to remain high, um, and uh, even when the patients uh, um, return to home, Um, and or were never able to uh, return to their pre-morbid functional status. Because of the caregiver burden, some investigators have uh, begun to uh, try to create a new nomenclature for this caregiver burden, this caregiver stress, the so-called post-intensive care syndrome family. And there have been some risk factors associated with this um, published in the literature, including female gender and and having a younger patient, lower educational level, and and sometimes uh, even uh, pre-existing mental health problems may put some people at risk, but not necessarily. Um, And higher levels of stress may also increase the risk. Our own group uh, and uh, uh, my co-principal investigator, Jill Cameron, uh, and I led um, a large study that began in 2007, uh, part of the Recover program, the Towards Recover study. This was an attempt to study patients and their family caregivers together over time to understand outcomes and to understand how patient and family outcomes relate and influence each other. Our one-year outcomes in caregivers of critically ill patients, including a very large proportion of sepsis patients, ARDS patients, but all medical and high-risk surgical patients, was published in the New England Journal this past May and uh, presented at the American Thoracic Society. In this paper, we were able to show that the caregivers reported important depression from seven days uh, where 53% of patients, uh, of caregivers, pardon me, reported moderate to severe depressive symptoms. And this continued uh, out to one year where still 27% of caregivers were reporting important depressive symptoms. These caregivers had some attenuation in their depressive symptoms over time, but what we were able to show in this work was that uh, 16 percent of patients' caregivers did not have an attenuation of their depressive symptoms by one year, that these depressive symptoms remained high. And this was very concerning to us, and these different trajectory groups, did not differ by the caregiver's socio-demographics or living arrangements or any previous caregiving experience, nor were they influenced, and this was a bit striking to us, by the patient's own functional status. These seemed to be intrinsic and important mood disorders related to the caregiver and her or his factors. And those were having a sense of less mastery and social support and needing more assistance and just really feeling the impact of being a caregiver. It's important to emphasize that caregiving does not only put one at risk for mood disorders, but it is indeed a risk factor for mortality as shown by the Caregiver Health Effects Study published in JAMA in 1999. Being a caregiver who perceives a lot of caregiver burden and uh, is responsible for looking after a disabled uh, family member, in particular a spouse, is at increased risk of death. And this is a very important um, note and important, uh, uh, has important implications for public health. Some of the challenges and opportunities, and I'm just going to close here, are as follows. It's important to understand that the family gets sick when the patient gets sick. Family members may develop mood disorders. They may also have the development of health problems. This kind of a stressful life event, a traumatic life event, has important sequelae, and there are important sequelae not just for the patient but for the family caregiver. Not only the patient but the family caregiver needs support from the moment of ICU admission through all healthcare transitions. We need to be looking after everyone in the family and to be looking after them longitudinally. And um, I think with that I will close and I thank uh, everyone very much for the kind invitation and for the really wonderful opportunity to share these data and to highlight this important issue in sepsis and in critical illness. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, uh, Margaret. Um, There is a question uh, that uh, has come in. A survivor of sepsis, uh, in fact uh, two bouts of sepsis, Uh has been unable to work, and her husband has had to take care of everything himself. He's uh, become depressed, as you've mentioned in your talk, is uh, not unusual, and I'm sure she is depressed as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the question she's asking is, what can I do to ease my husband's burden? Is this a question that you have come across in your studies?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, yes, we have, and in fact, you know, Ray, I followed I followed up all these uh, folks uh, across Toronto in my own clinic here, so I had a lot of dialogue with them. And um, I guess the first thing I would say is I'm sorry that there's so much difficulty that doesn't seem to be validated and there's not a lot of help being offered. Um, what we have done in our clinic is try to help facilitate mental health resources. I think this is something that we really need to work on and to uh, make much more available um, to help people to access uh, mental health resources, to connect them, to facilitate this connectedness. At least in the province of Ontario here in Toronto and in Canada, and we, you know, really do have excellent resources, but mental health resources are always a little bit tricky, and um, I, I think that's one thing that I, that I would suggest that's not um, that's sometimes a little bit difficult through a primary care physician. I would also say that there are many chat groups online, um, and there are many groups who really do want to share information, discuss, talk, informal peer um, counseling, and uh, some practical recommendations. There's a website, the ARDS USA website. There are websites in the UK, um, and I think if you look for these, um, there is a lot of discussion and support. I think as we move forward trying to really formalize post-ICU care, I hope that for patients and families, this will be much more of a proscribed care map and an expectation that we need to, you know, ask people over time what sort of help they need, and, and that sort of help will involve uh, accessing mental health resources.
1: Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Margaret. There's so many questions that arise out of this. uh, I'm sure uh, from other panel members and myself uh, whose families uh, have had to uh, deal with these difficult issues and also the long-term effects. I think um, we'll have a a chance for more questions at the end. uh, This has been... Uh, Amazing, and thanks so much
2: for participating. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you,
1: Ray. I'm now uh, honored to introduce our first panel member, Dr. Carl Flatley. He is the founder of Sepsis Alliance, the United States-based organization which specializes in sepsis, education, and patient advocacy. For more than 20 years, Dr. Flatley headed a successful dental practice on Florida's West Coast. He retired in 1995, but that retirement in his world was turned upside down when his 23-year-old daughter, Erin, a perfectly healthy graduate student, entered a hospital for elective surgery. Five days later, she was gone, a victim of septic shock and medical errors. It never should have happened. Since the death of his daughter, Dr. Flatley has made sepsis awareness his priority and personally donated over $1.2 million to help create the Sepsis Alliance, the US-based organization. Sepsis Alliance was a founding member of Global Sepsis Alliance, but now represents over 70 countries and over 1 million healthcare givers. Carl is currently on the board of directors of Sepsis Alliance and presides over his daughter's Memorial Foundation which supports only sepsis-oriented projects. Uh, Carl, uh, can I invite you to make a general remarks to our audience on your work and your situation? Perhaps you could start with the following. Sepsis has had a very major impact on you and your family. Can you summarize briefly how your efforts to bring awareness about sepsis to the medical and general population have evolved and the focus of these efforts over the past 14 years?
3: Uh, Yes, I would, but first I'd like to congratulate the organizers of this event because 12 years ago when I started, and I'd like to take credit for what has occurred, but in 2003 when I started this, if you put sepsis in an email, it got thrown out as a misspelled word. There was no sepsis awareness month. There were no sepsis heroes. No sepsis awareness, no global sepsis alliance. There were some new guidelines that came out, which was kind of the start. So with all the work that FCCM has done, surviving sepsis campaign, global sepsis alliance, all these things have taken place. So it's, it's really a good time. The bad news is during this same period of time, over 3 million Americans have died in spite of our progress. So we've got a long way to go and a lot to do. Uh,
1: thanks, Carl. Uh, we can perhaps get to more specifics on your activities, uh, but um, I think our audience, uh, because we're patients and victims uh, panel, would be uh, interested in the story briefly of, uh, of your daughter, Erin, and uh, what you think uh, medical professionals have to do to best reduce incidents and improve outcomes for sepsis?
3: Well, it's been said, I think it's really appropriate that everybody, including the patient, has to think sepsis. The public has to be educated. They've got to get in there as soon as they see the early science and ask for a screening or even demand, because sometimes you have to push the envelope. My daughter sat in the ER for four hours, and they told her to wait because she was not a priority. Uh, antibiotics the first night when her blood count was 24,000. She was not given antibiotics because she was told it might cause diarrhea. This is what happened and continues to happen. I've been told, and maybe you can help me with this, that only 50% of U.S. hospitals are using evidence-based protocols for sepsis. That's unacceptable. So health professionals are being held to a higher standard. We know what works. We know hospitals have accomplished this. There's Northwell, Sutter, Intermountain Health, Kaiser. I mean, we know that they can reduce their mortality by 50%. This does not need to happen. So in spite of the great progress and all the things that have happened, everyone has to be a part of this. We can't just have a few champion doctors. Uh, we need the entire medical profession and the public to take care of this problem, and it is a major problem in the U.S.,
1: uh, Carl, um, I think this will come up uh, certainly later in the panel discussion, but uh, perhaps you can comment on the, how, how you think we can get medical professionals to listen to people who uh, come into clinics or hospitals with symptoms they think are serious but the medical professionals
3: perhaps don't. Early on, I've done a number of things. i started an educational course for nurses. i talked to uh, my my local medical school here in town about setting up courses for physicians. And he said, well, he said, we better just go to the medical school. He said, the physicians are out there practicing now. They're going to do what they've been doing, which kind of surprised me. So it's the younger people, the more educated, you know, that they're talking about stuff. I went through specialty school in the Donnickton I never heard the word sepsis. I practiced for 20 years. I treated infected teeth every day, did surgery. I never heard the word sepsis. Most dentists don't know anything about sepsis, and you can die from a root canal infection or an impacted tooth. So it takes education, and it just everyone's got to keep pushing forward. There's there's no lag time. Everyone has to think sepsis. That's the number three cause of death in the country. I mean, it's just, it, it bothers my mind the number of physicians who this is not priority for them is we're so specialized that it's like not my job. Well, it is. Uh,
1: Carl, uh, you know, being so involved uh, with sepsis, with your foundation and and sepsis alliance, um, what do you think? uh, There's been progress for sure since 2002. Uh, What is the, what are the greatest, uh, advances uh, that have been made, in your opinion, in uh, controlling or or, uh, alleviating
3: the burden of sepsis in the United States? Well, we finally figured out what works. Now, when I started, that's when Zygris was out, and they were very helpful to me in getting the sepsis line set up, but they had a product to push. We don't have a silver bullet, but we do know that if it's recognized early and you give antibiotics, fluids, and supportive therapy within the first hour, we can save 80% of these people. I mean, it's been said, 80% preventable. So, again, we know what works. We don't have that silver bullet yet, and it may be a long time before we get there, but we can't wait. We have to do what works, and it's been proven that if you do those three things, you can reduce the mortality. And the other thing that comes with this, which... It was not part of it when I got started. We only talked about the best. It's like the person who just gave the presentation. The disabilities that follow are unbelievable. That's got to be addressed. So again, there's so much to do.
1: It it seems, uh, Carl, that uh, this is a situation where uh, the the long term costs are ignored uh, because of the short term. Uh, costs of education and treatment. Uh, because there are, uh, the burden of sepsis continues, uh, as I've found, uh, throughout a lifetime of a person who survives. The pain, of yes. course, continues with a, a family of a person who doesn't survive. Yes. You've been at advancing the cause of sepsis uh, for 14 years. Um, Can you tell our listeners uh, how they can participate? I know many of them, perhaps most, are health professionals, but what would you ask them to do to help the cause?
3: Well, again, I think it goes back to the education of the public is, I mean, you would assume, you would think that health professionals, this would be first priority, that they don't need this kind of education, however they do. But, as we do at the Sepsis lines try to educate the public so they're aware of it. They take the first action. I mean, how many people say, I've got the flu, but I'll just see how I feel tomorrow, and they don't have it tomorrow? So we're all about patient education, public awareness, and to empower the patients, if you will, the public, to get a sepsis screening, to demand that they be checked, uh, to know what they're talking about, and speak up. Get a second opinion, if need be, or whatever. I've had sepsis myself, and I was told to take antibiotics and go home, and I refused. And I was in the hospital for the next 11 days, had two surgeries and antibiotics for 40 days, and the doctor told me just go home, not to worry about sepsis. So, again, it comes back first. It's empower the public, so that they demand the treatment they deserve. Uh, thanks,
1: Carl. Uh, uh, I think, uh, we'll, again, we'll have uh, further questions at the end of the uh, session. And uh, really a heartfelt thanks for your contributions over the years. You've done a truly amazing job. I think anyone who goes to the websites of Sepsis Alliance and GSA will see and, and uh, can see from just looking at your name online how much you've contributed. Thanks again,
3: Carl. Thank you, I appreciate
1: it. Our second panelist uh, is Arnie Truman. Uh, Arnie is a German, living in Germany. He's a survivor of sepsis, and like many other survivors and those who were not so lucky, his history is that of poor initial diagnosis, followed by extremely serious illness and complications, both during and following recovery. In February 2012, Arnie was 44 years old, in good physical condition, a father with a family of three children. He will tell you about his first doctor who did not even recognize sepsis, and his second doctor who was called 15 minutes later with the ambulance and immediately correctly diagnosed his condition. Arnie survived septic shock after being put into an induced coma for four weeks, among other consequences. Arnie lost seven fingertips and was on disability leave from work for nine months. Despite all this, Arnie has gone back to work as a project manager and has resumed his uh, piano playing, his major passion. And because of his experience, Arnie has decided to offer us his thoughts uh, in this Congress, in his personal campaign to make sepsis better known by the public and healthcare professionals. Barney, uh, perhaps you could start with uh, t- describing your condition when you first contacted your doctor and how you managed to get a second doctor to intervene within such a short period of time.
4: Yeah, this is uh, Anna Truman speaking. And uh, at first, I want to thank you that uh, I got the opportunity to uh, be part of this uh, webinar. It's, I believe, a very good place to make sure that sepsis gets more and more known all over the world. And uh, I believe that my story is uh, just one of many, many stories which have been happening all over the world in maybe quite a similar way because um, the knowledge of sepsis is not yet as big as we should have it uh also, in the healthcare scene, so uh I felt sick at the beginning of the week, as with the uh, influenza infection, and uh I was at home for two days and recovered more or less, and said, "Okay, I can go back to work so um It was not very difficult to to recover from an influenza, so I tried to do my job. But on Friday, at the end of this week, I felt more and more down during the day, so I started early in the morning. And uh, so I decided to go home in, uh, in the late afternoon where I dropped in at home alone, so my family was out for that hour, and I laid down on the sofa in the living room to uh, make sure that I can go back and have a nice weekend, but in fact, I didn't recover, I felt more and more down, so one hour later, my wife came home, found me on the sofa, and I was in a very bad condition, feeling sick as never before, and she asked me, hey, what's going on? And uh, I said, I do not feel really good. I think we should ask, contact a doctor to make sure that if it doesn't get better, that I can get something to, to get back on my legs. And uh, then we are living, that is something I have to say in this way, uh, between two big cities, so it's uh, on the countryside and the uh, ambulance services and the uh, medicine services that we have here are more or less okay, but on the weekends everything is driven down and no doctor is available 24 hours. They have organized something that you have one call. You can call one number to get a medicine, see a doctor, and uh, he asks us to come to his, his practice. But uh, my wife replied that uh, I'm not able to walk or to go or to drive somewhere, so uh, she had, or the doctor had.
1: Arnie, are you with us?
4: I am, I'm here, yes, I'm back.
1: I think you were well into your story when we left off. I think you were at the, getting the second doctor to help you within a short period of time. And I'd like you just to uh, carry on and, and tell us if you had been aware of sepsis at the time you were going through this, would you have acted differently or done anything differently? Um, so please go ahead, Ernie.
4: Yeah. Well, what I would have done when I would have been aware about sepsis, I would have more insisted to, uh, to force the doctor to, uh, to examine myself, to make sure that uh, there's something going on that is not usual. And, uh, the reason that I got the second doctor so quick was that the first doctor who did not find out what it was just wrote down a, a document that enabled us to call an ambulance car to get me to hospital. And uh, 15 minutes after the first dog left our family, we called the ambulance services and the uh, man who came to our house with the ambulance car was uh, an uh, ICU doctor, so he was aware about sepsis very well. He saw me, and it just took him seconds to see how my condition was, and uh, immediately found out that I have a septic shock, and that I was about to lose my organs, to, uh, to have the uh, syndrome that the organs uh, will, got, uh, will go down more and more, and he decided to bring me to the ICU um, immediately and uh, it took me more than uh, forty minutes driving in an ambulance car from my place where I live, to the hospital in which uh, is almost forty kilometers away from my home. And um, he really, in fact, saved my life because he was aware about sepsis. And that was the reason I do the efforts to make sure that every medicine, so I go to the congresses, to the Weimar sepsis updates and so on, tell my story to make sure that everybody around in the uh, medical world is, about, is aware about sepsis and thinks about it, and that's what will save many lives, even thinking about it, talk it, say to the doctor, could it be a sepsis, think about it, check it out, and if you say yes, then we have to act immediately.
1: So uh, we haven't really talked about the... Uh, burden of sepsis uh, uh, you know specifically financially uh, but certainly for you uh, if you had been diagnosed sooner uh, if uh, sepsis or acute sepsis could have been avoided, it would have made a huge difference. Can you just tell us what those emotional and financial impacts have been short and long term
4: yeah um financial wise um I'm in the lucky situation that the the german healthcare um financial situation is very good, so uh, we have calculated that the uh, the stay in the hospitals the rehabilitation the recovering time uh, would have consumed about one hundred thousand euros to cover my costs so um if this would have happened in the United States maybe where the uh, Healthcare insurance is not available for everybody. I for sure would have left my house and my family would have left or would have lost her home. So uh, I'm in the lucky situation that my rehabilitation was successful. I could go back to my old job, although I have been away for, for nine months. but my recovery was that good that I could go back to my to my old job. So the financial situation for me was not that difficult as for many other people who had uh, to fight with uh, much more difficulties because of uh, disabilities of uh, their health. Uh,
1: Thanks very much, Arnie. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we – I'm going to look at the chat line here and pick up a few questions, uh, but – um, is there some any closing remarks you'd like to make?
4: Well, I think um, the uh, webinar we are doing here is uh, one of the best uh, stages to make sure that we get more and more listened in the world. And uh, also Mr. Staunton stated that uh, we have to save many, many lives and we have the availability to do it if we only take care that everybody who's involved in the medical scene knows about BEPSIS and knows how to act.
1: Uh, Thanks, Ernie. Uh, So I will uh, move on uh, to Melissa Mead, uh, who I'm pleased to introduce to you as our third panelist. Melissa currently lives in the U.K. and is 29 years old. And... Uh, tragically, Melissa recently lost her one-year-old son, William, to sepsis. When William fell, s- fell seriously ill, Melissa did not know what sepsis was or its symptoms, those deadly symptoms that William was displaying. Uh, Melissa must now live with the knowledge that William's death would have been avoidable with prompt diagnosis by her medical professionals and treatment. Since losing William, Melissa has thrown herself into a constructive and positive campaign to raise awareness amongst the public to try to mitigate the chances of this happening to others. Uh, Melissa, uh, by way of introduction, can you uh, share your story with us and what lessons you've learned about sepsis? Uh, particularly what you have to say to our audience, mainly health professionals, about what they can and should be doing to make sure that your loss is not suffered by others.
5: Yeah, hi, good evening. Um, th- thank you for um, inviting me along. Um, I'm, I'm really quite honored to speak and share William's story, so um William actually fell ill probably about 10 to 11 weeks before he succumbed to sepsis. He'd had a chest infection which actually developed into pneumonia. Um, At the time, we didn't know this. We'd actually taken him to the doctors several times within this 11-week period. Um, In the end, that was six visits um, and a second opinion because we weren't very happy. William was coughing. He was vomiting. He was coughing up green sputum. Um, it was around the same time that he was teasing, he was also just starting to walk, so becoming more mobile. Um, so he did lose a little bit of weight, but nothing significant. Um, in, in, the, in, the week, in, the, in the week leading up to William's death, he he started to just become very different. Um, he, he was not interested in play, he was not interested in food. Um, so we, we trundled off to the doctors again, and we were sent home. Um, and it all culminated um, one day when William spiked a temperature of over 40 degrees. Um, and so we went into the emergency doctor um, and had what we thought was a thorough examination. And at the time, you assume that whats what you're being told is, is the full and accurate truth. Um, it transpired that, that William actually didn't have a thorough examination. And a lot of the observations that should have been done actually weren't done, and they were done incorrectly. Um, following this, we took William home um, on, on the doctor's advice that actually William just had a viral infection um, and to just give him paracetamol fluids and, and plenty of rest. So we, we took him home and we, we did as we were instructed and he went to bed. And he he his temperature started to come down the next day, um, but I was still quite concerned. He was still not right. He was just... He just wasn't right, Um, as as any parent will tell you, they know when their children are just not right. So, I'm still concerned, I called the out of hours um, service that we have here with the NHS and I followed their triage system and answered all their questions, Um, but I didn't actually know that the answers that they were putting into that system, they were putting in incorrectly, um, which is human error. And the disposition that we were told was it was a non-emergency and we would have a six-hour call back with the doctor. However, I was still really concerned, so I actually saw the doctor um, within three hours. um, And this doctor wasn't very concerned. Um, He just basically told us to leave William in bed, um, that this was completely normal. It was a viral infection to maintain paracetamol um, fluids and such like. And William was actually asleep at this time. This was later on in the evening, so we left. We left William in bed, and, and actually during the evening, he didn't. He didn't stir. He, he wasn't really. He didn't cry at all. He seemed fairly settled. Um, the next morning, um, we, we checked on William at half past five, and he was seemingly okay. He just had a little drink, and he put himself back to sleep. And by eight o'clock, we went in to check on William, and he had passed away. Um, what actually transpired, we didn't actually have any idea of what sepsis was or um, or its symptoms. Um, we had never been told of the word sepsis. We'd been, um, never been warned to look out for it. The first time that we heard that word was actually when we received William's death certificate. And I, I looked to Paul, William's dad, and said, well, that must be rare. I've, I've not heard of that. Um, subsequently, doing... Um, a little bit of investigation online um, we found out that actually it's the UK's second biggest killer and I, I, I did not understand why we had not been informed of this and sadly I would like to I would like to think that the errors that were made with Williams Care won't happen again because obviously these were individual errors by, by doctors um, it, there is a huge system error I think with a big hole in it that that needs to be filled with awareness amongst the public and also I can mirror some of the previous panellists um, to say that the education within within the health system um, with doctors and consultants and um, the nurses etc to be thinking sepsis um, but William actually had um, an inadequate examination on, on the 36 hours before he died um, and so symptoms that he was displaying weren't picked up because they weren't checked so um for me i i guess everyone needs to be thinking sepsis it doesn't just need to be parents and um, it needs to be those that we visit whether that be GPs it needs to be out of hours and the systems that we that we um that we encounter need to be sensitive to these symptoms. Obviously, for us, we we, we had a non-verbal child. He wasn't able to articulate, "Mummy, it hurts here," or "My feet are feeling cold. I'm actually feeling feverish," you know, which which we would be able to articulate. But um, but you know, at one years old, he he wasn't able to, to to say that. We were very much reliant on on those that we went to see with him.
1: Melissa. In the National Health Service report on Williams' uh, death, um, that report indicated his care was inadequate. I was wondering if any of your health professionals acknowledged their responsibility and if that would have had any impact on you had they done so?
5: yeah, the um there were five in there were four individuals and one system error, the system error being the online. Um, triage that we called um, all four individuals and the triage system have admitted failure and accountability for William's death um, and we for, for us the best apology is change behavior Um there's nothing that we can do to bring William back nor anyone else if we could have done it we would Um, So what we're trying to do is to make sure that those individuals never make those mistakes again and also to make sure that the systems that they use all talk to each other so that everyone is singing off the same hymn sheet, so to speak. You know, everyone needs to be triaging um, patients um, accurately within that first hour and everyone needs to be thinking sepsis and also, you know, parents that are, that have this concern over their child. Um, they should be listened to. You know, or, or we had six or seven visits with the doctor, and their levels of their index of suspicion should have been raised. You know, we're William's parents. We're with him twenty-four hours a day, and and, and we just the basically the dots just weren't joined up, and we were just not listened to.
1: You know, listening, uh, Melissa, it seems to me is a very key factor. Uh, I happen to be a lawyer, and a lot of my job is making sure that I listen. And uh, last year when we had a webinar, there was um, a woman called Lisa Brand. Uh, She's written a brief book on sepsis, and she uh, fell ill with sepsis and was um, hospitalized over a period of time. But her story and Arnie's story and my story and your story uh, really bring to mind the obligation of our professional healthcare givers uh, to really listen and understand uh, and take in, uh, even when they have a heavy patient load, uh, what's going on and who their patient is. What do you think?
5: I entirely agree with you. I think um, Initially, sepsis, especially in the UK, now, now needs to be considered as a medical emergency. And I don't think um, last year, for example, especially when William died, it was being considered as a medical emergency. Um, I think a lot of our systems, in terms of when we visit with children, um, more specifically those that are unable to articulate how they feel. Um, is to actually listen to the parents because if the parents say are saying to you, he's just not right, generally they're right. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they spend the most time with their children. They notice the subtle changes and it's these subtle changes that are going to point you in the right direction. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I entirely agree with you.
1: Um, Melissa, just a, a brief comment because we're running short on time. Um, you uh, felt, uh, as you indicated in the material you gave to me, anyway, that um, you felt a lot of guilt uh, that you didn't force an ambulance driver to uh, to take action. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe I'm getting it wrong. You felt guilt, but perhaps not that specifically. Uh, how um, how do you how did you deal with that guilt? Uh, do you have any comments to make for to back to Margaret from the keynote on how to deal with that aspect of the sepsis situation? Yeah,
5: um, no, I, I, there was no ambulance involved with William's care. Um, just to, to clarify that, um, the, the guilt that that I, I think I and William's dad um, feel is that you know we feel we felt at the time that we were doing everything that we possibly could. And you, you reach out and you go to one health professional, you go to another health professional, you request a second opinion, and you're continually turned away. And you, you're almost made to feel neurotic. And now looking back on it, um, we can't believe that there was ever a time we didn't know about sepsis because obviously it's something that we have lived and breathed for the last 22 months. And every single time we look at photos or we look at um, parts of William's story from the 36 hours before he died, we say to ourselves, why didn't we do this, why didn't we do that, why didn't, you know. And we're guilty of following advice. And I think therein lies the problem. It it, it created um, a a problem for us as parents to be able to trust. Um, We didn't do anything wrong other than trust the people that should have known better.
1: I'll just clarify. uh, When I was talking about guilt, my wife uh, actually uh, allowed an ambulance driver to persuade her that I should not be returned to the hospital. That's where the mix-up occurs with me. And um, as a result, uh, I went into acute sepsis. So she felt a lot of guilt as well. And I think, again, coming back to uh, Dr. Heritage's keynote, um, this is a big factor, a continuing factor that we all have to deal with. Uh, I so
5: totally uh, agree. Uh,
1: uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us, uh, Melissa. really appreciate it, and um, I'm sure you'll be on the line to answer further questions um, yeah. at the end of the okay. session.
5: Yes, no problem. Thank you very much for listening to our
1: story. So we'll uh, move on to the uh, fourth panelist, um, Sierra Staunton. Sierran and his wife Orlith, I hope I've got the pronunciations correct, established the Rory Staunton Foundation uh, following the death of their 12-year-old son, Rory, from sepsis in 2012. Uh, Anyone who's familiar with sepsis would have part of the Rory Staunton Foundation and the uh, efforts to bring legislative change and change to the medical profession generally surrounding sepsis. Uh, Over the past four years, uh, this foundation has facilitated the development and implementation of hospital sepsis protocols, which are now mandatory in New York and Illinois, and are in the process of being adopted in states across the country. Uh, The foundation has worked extensively with the U.S. Congress and CDC to drastically increase federal funding for sepsis awareness, diagnosis, and treatment. Uh, In addition, uh, the foundation works to improve understanding of sepsis as a medical emergency, uh, both through public awareness and uh, in schools and to the health care givers as well. The foundation established the National Family Council on Sepsis, a network of families impacted by the condition uh, who advocate for improved sepsis policies in each state. So uh, I was wondering, Saren, if you could tell our listeners briefly your story about Rory, your battle with sepsis. And your, which brought you to such a forceful and uh, uh, profound understanding that uh, mandatory sepsis protocols are vital in the fight against sepsis.
6: Thank you very much. And I know we've probably, I don't have much time, so I'm going to keep this very short. So instead of going back into the whole episode of it, I know I'm against the clock. Uh, Rory's story, all of it, is on Rory Staunton Foundation for sepsis.org. So I think maybe a lot of people could could look on that rather than have me cut into the time. However, let me just go right into it and say is that mandatory sepsis protocols are the way to saving lives. In New York State, every hospital has to have sepsis protocols, if not as, as... You know, there are are a number of people on here who know who we're going through. Carol Flatley buried a child. Melissa Mead buried a beautiful William. We know what has to be done. We know what each other is going through. We won't have any of those other issues that other people spoke about. We will live in torture for the rest of our lives. So what we did was we said, well, what could have been done different on the night? We went through that. We sat down with Northwell. They had a, they cut sepsis fatalities by 50% in five years. We drew up with them, we got New York State, and we drew up Rory's regulations. Now, since that has become law in New York, each year, each year in New York, we save between five and 8,000 New Yorkers who in any other state would have died from sepsis. It's no-brain situation. So, what do we need to do? We need to make sure they're mandatory. Voluntarily codes are granted for a hospital, but any of those three parents who are on that who buried their children know there is no point going to a hospital late at night and wondering, "Do you have sepsis protocols in place?" Now, when I addressed this conference in in uh, Berlin three years ago, my challenge then was to everyone in the room and on the various instances. It all starts locally, to get your local town, get your local state, and get your country. Now, what we have done here is that we have our states, we have Illinois, we have about six other states in progress at the moment. Our campaign is to have every U.S. state have sepsis protocols in place by 2020 that would save almost a quarter um, over a quarter of a million American lives no matter how much information we put out remember when we met with CDC in Washington four years ago they didn't even have sepsis on their website under the letter R we have changed that we have done a lot of changes however the only thing that will force a hospital and many medical institutions into action is when it comes from the government and that is what we are doing here. So when parents go out with their child at night, we shouldn't have they shouldn't have to wonder neither mm-hmm. Carl nor Melissa or us shouldn't have to wonder or ring on a door say, Are you part of the sepsis protocol? Are you part of the voluntary area? Are you aware of the thing that was on T V the other night? Remember Ola checked Rory from meningitis. The hospitals checked for everything else. They didn't know about sepsis. Every child that dies around the world today, if they all came into a hospital in New York, they'd be checked straight away for sepsis. And the CDC just recently reported, and this is very important to note, over 80% of the people who die from sepsis had sepsis coming into the hospital. So, therefore, it was detectable at the front door when they were doing triage. And that is where it has to be mandated. And where we go to next, we actually have had the first forum ever here where we brought all the agencies together. Remember, when our son died and we went on the website, there there was nothing on websites. There was absolutely nothing. The U.S. government agencies weren't even talking to each other. But just like Melissa has done in England, while people may talk about feeling their pain, only us that bought coffins have the pain, and we have to make the change. And what Melissa has done in England recently, and what she has had to do, we know what she's had to do, because anyone yesterday who watched television and saw the children going back to school know that our children won't ever be going back to school, our Rory, and neither will William. And when we go forward about, well, how do we do this, we have in place Rory's regulations Remember, they have to be mandated, because if they're not mandated, it won't work. And if ourselves, again, Carl, Melissa, we had to go out tonight with our child, we would know if we were in New York, yes, that hospital has a sepsis protocol. But what other state, what other country? And I'll ask, you know, if if, if even it comes on to everyone on this phone line, does your state, does your city, does your country... They have mandatory protocols, and as I was in one state last week, and I asked the uh, the surgeon, uh, sorry, the the commissioner, the health commissioner, it's not uh, what you can do about it, but why don't you have them on? They have been endorsed. They have saved lives. We have met people who are alive today because of Rory's protocols, and if they had been in another state or another country, they would be dead. So going back to it, 2020. So we can take. If you go onto our website, you can take any state, any country. And what we have put in place is for saving lives. So why don't? Why not put it in place? Anyway, I know I know you're running out of time. But we over over. So I'll I'll hand it back to you.
1: So, well, we actually uh, we're, we're, we'll run over, uh, but I can. I just want to say, I can see how you've made so much headway uh, with. Uh, Uh, You're very persuasive, uh, Zarin, and it's uh, unfortunate that you had to take up this cause, but uh, I can certainly see the results. I Just one quick question. Uh, With the hospitals being as busy as they are and medical professionals being uh, sort of pushed to the limit in terms of time, uh, do you think that even if the protocols are mandatory, uh, have you seen them in action? Do they work from your experience? Well, I just what I've just said to you, do they work
6: in New York alone? Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. They save between five and 8,000 people each, right. each year. So those lives saved are directly attributed to hospitals, to throy's regulations. So if you're at our forum on Monday, I can introduce you to people who are alive because of them. They work, mm-hmm. and to say, do they work well? So taking someone's blood pressure, does that work? Just checking mm-hmm. someone's heartbeat, does that work? Right. It's all, when it's in, it's in at the front door. It's worked in North or LIJ and it's worked in, in them all because by saving them at the front door, you don't have to try to save them in ICU. And it is also what many of the hospitals come back with is because they're saving them and putting them on antibiotics – they do not have to put the financial resources from the children are brought back in, like our children were, into ICU, and it's been two days trying to keep them alive. It costs tens of thousands. So the, the, the answer to your question is, does it work well? There's 15,000 New Yorkers alive in, in New York today who would be dead, but for always regulations. So I think they will verify that it works.
1: Good. Well, it's nice to know that our struggles are uh, paying off. Uh, for sure, and with the the figures and data that you're you're presenting. So uh, there'll be uh, opportunity again for some more questions at the end. We have about uh, 20 minutes left in the formal session. I'm not sure what's happened to Arnie, but I'm going to move on to Matthias Wienhold, who is our fifth contributor, Uh, and I'm pleased to introduce him. He is also from Germany, uh, currently 54. Uh, Interestingly, he is a physician with a master's degree in public health. I say interestingly because he suffered from sepsis and uh, one of the questions we'll be looking at is why a doctor himself would be, uh, would find diagnosis and treatment so difficult to come by. Matthias consults with physicians practicing in the state of Brandenburg on issues of medical economics and regulatory matters. Uh, He's uh, an internationally experienced HIV-AIDS activist, a researcher in community participation, and a champion for uh, patient safety. He currently serves as treasurer of the International Alliance of Patient Organizations and it is through that connection he has kindly agreed to participate in this Congress. He promotes patients' role in medical education and the creation and expansion of patients' organizations. As I mentioned, he's a survivor of sepsis, which he contracted in February 2016, just recently. His insistence on his symptoms... Uh, sweats, fatigue, fevers, rapid breath, and his response to healthcare professionals, I think I will die, ultimately got him an x-ray and treatment. Matthias as a survivor, our audience would surely want to know how serious your condition became and the impact of your sepsis on you and your family, plus how as a doctor with a, a medical background, your access to the medical system Uh, Was so difficult.
7: Thank you very much, Ray, for introducing me uh, with so kind words, and thank you very much to the audience for listening to basically two stories and two roles that I uh, bring to this table one as a patient representative and organized in several patient organizations, and uh, the other as a very recent survivor of sepsis. the question regarding my professionality, actually, I'm a private person, too. I'm a trombone player. I row. I ride the bike, so I'm very sportive. I got a flu beginning of January. I didn't really recover. I was asked whether I was in pain, but that was not really the right question because I have cluster headache syndrome, one of the most devastating pain syndromes in the world. Uh, but it's it it got me nowhere, I basically got to uh, acute distress syndrome uh, four weeks later, and um, even then I didn't see the physicians uh, who were stepping in for my regular GP, and they diagnosed me with chronic uh, uh, distress syndrome because I was a smoker. I went back two days later because I really couldn't sort my life anymore, and I went to see my regular GP. I insisted on seeing him, and he granted me VIP status. He made the path for me. The moment I said, I am I think I'm going to die. And even then, I had to walk into the hospital, find the right place. I had my husband with me who was just as disoriented as I was in the a, in a German healthcare system. He's from Spain. Um, and we ended up in, a emergency in the emergency department having to call the pneumologist to see whether I had an, a pneumonia that wasn't to be heard because my middle lobe had just simply collapsed and there was no clinical signs other than what I was talking about. So... I actually did get the right uh, treatment. I didn't go even go into hospital. I insisted on going home when I saw all the other people who were almost dying there in the emergency department. I didn't really feel like I needed that kind of care. But it took me two days with no memory, really, uh, of those two days and very, very low function. I basically laid in bed, and I got up to to take my pills uh, before I recovered and uh, two weeks to really find my breath again. So that's the story how I got my diagnosis, not really fulfilled, because three months later I went to the World Health Assembly in Geneva and I met uh, Professor Reinhardt, and um, he explained to me what I had just been going through. So I think part of why I didn't realize what I was going through has also to do with my own history. I, I've been living in the shadow of the AIDS epidemic as an HIV negative man. For 30 years, I'm I'm dissimulating, basically. I've seen so many uh, painful things around me, so many, uh, I must even say, ugly things around me that I wasn't really caring for myself. Maybe that's uh, an explanation. Only when I realized that I had become a VIP in the hospital and that I was treated outside of any guideline, I must say there was no guideline established for sepsis, um, I realized that I really needed help. And then in May, I discovered I had survived such as I'm very glad to have done so.
1: What, uh, in hindsight, uh, should you have done that you didn't do? Uh, I'm th- thinking of my own personal experience as a healthy person with very high pain tolerance, complaining, Uh, to doctors uh, telling them that this was the worst pain I ever felt and being ignored, really, until it was almost too late. Um, In hindsight, is there some lesson you can bring to the audience about your experience?
7: I should have listened to my colleagues much more closely. I shouldn't have uh, put their advice away because they were only pharmacists, the pharmacists and my office were telling me that I had a pneumonia, and I didn't I didn't want to, to realize that. So that's one of the things. I, I really should have listened to the people around me who have some background in disease, and I shouldn't have disregarded them just because they were not physicians. Um, I should certainly think that, um, having insisted on an X-ray earlier with the uh, physicians that were seeing me and not having them uh, talk me around, well, that will be getting better, and if it doesn't get better in two weeks, we will do a lung, a pulmonary function. I, I, I may have much more followed my, my original intention of having an X-ray done much earlier.
1: So we, as patients, have to pay attention and... Parents have to pay attention, well, healthcare I, have to pay. Healthcare givers have to pay attention and listen, all of us. Well, I, I think one of the things that were said earlier,
7: which is we really need to become aware of sepsis. Mm-hmm. I, as a physician, wasn't aware of myself going through this. I only learned it two months later, and I really felt like I got the shivers when, when Professor Reinhardt was, was telling me that I was a survivor myself, basically. So we really need to realize that sepsis is an everyday thing, that it happens very easily, um, and that we encounter it almost every day.
1: I was wondering uh, if you could uh, just say a few words about Diapo and uh, its approach on uh, patient safety uh, with uh, some focus on sepsis.
7: That was actually the first thing I told uh, Professor Reinhardt, and I said there is really strong parallel between what I experience now uh, uh, as I've come to uh, get in touch with you uh, and um, with the experiences I have uh, looking back uh, 11 years to 2005 with the patient safety movement. In 2005, IAPO, the International Alliance of Patient Organizations, and WHO came together to uh, uh, do a seminar. It was, I think, initiated by Sir Liam Donaldson and uh, Don Berwick at the time. They spoke to us about uh, how important uh, it was that patients became part of the patient safety movement. Actually, they said, you are the center of our whole movement. Uh, they empowered us very strongly. We became a, a very, very active group around the globe. I'm still in touch with them through WHO office. Our APO is also very close to WHO in Geneva. Nitida Prosper Plaisir is our contact person there. Um, and um, I, I feel still very motivated. I can uh, use the platform that has been established for us as patient safety champions, I contribute to, I use this opportunity to contribute to WHO position papers and um, I I still feel very strongly for this group. We sat together and we formulated our own agenda as patients, as families. The London Declaration, if you want to look it up on the web, it's the London Declaration 2005 Patients for Patient Safety. And we do this and I think for, for me, Personal motivation why I'm doing this here today uh, is I do this in honor of those who have died. I do this in honor of those who have been left disabled. I do it in in honor of those who are get to be born. And I will strive and I commit myself to committed myself immediately when I spoke to Professor Reinhardt to really contribute to bringing this case forward. It crosses across all interests of patients all diseases, and it is something that, at least from my perspective, coming from an individual, an industrialized country with a universal health coverage system, I mean, I had everything available. How much bigger must the problem be in the countries that we don't have presented here on the
1: panel? I, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, we haven't even spoken about the issues of sepsis in uh, the non-industrialized and poorer countries. Uh, that's a another topic. We'll have to cover it, uh, or it'll be covered in other sessions. Um, I'm wondering, um, to our technical people, is uh, Arnie, uh, before I leave, I leave uh, Matthias, uh, thanks so much for your participation uh, and uh, for... All of the work you've done with IAPo through the years, as well. Barry, um, so can I can I just uh, can I yes.
7: just add, add one more sentence? Absolutely. I, I one of the, the, the most recent discoveries I made was that medical schools all over the world. Are very interested in hearing from patients and their experiences. So please, everybody going uh, uh, listening to this out there, go to your medical school, talk to them, and say that you want to have a respectful dialogue about sepsis. Thank you.
1: A great idea. I'm just going to thank everyone for participating. Before we go into the question and answer, uh, there are a lot of amazing stories and a lot of very committed people this cause and I feel privileged to be part of it. So I'd like to, uh, there was a, there is one question here uh, I'd like to present, um, uh, perhaps um, Carl Frasierin might want to comment on this. What does the mandatory sepsis protocol entail?
6: Regarding the mandatory protocols, and I think when when anyone it shows up at a hospital,
5: what the vital
6: signs they look for. And that is what they have to have in place. Because when, when you look at the signs of sepsis, whether it be the fever and chills, rapid breathing, pale and mottled skin, extreme pain, weakness, and temperature, heartbeat, or a feeling, as the earlier speaker said, feels like I might die. What the protocols provide for sepsis screenings Training of all relevant hospital staff. Staff are on the lookout for hospitals. So looking uh, on the lookout for sepsis. Sepsis has to be part of their culture. And we talked about, you had mentioned earlier about uh, training other nurses and others. What happened in New York, because it became mandatory for the hospitals and all the medical associations, Therefore, automatically, all the nursing schools and uh, medical schools started teaching sepsis, and we've gone on actually teaching them in schools. So, when it comes up to the the very the very basic is knowing the signs, looking for them, and we have. And I know we're short on time. And on our again on our website, we have it itemized, and it is very very simple. Because let us not forget sepsis is very, very easy to detect when you're looking for it, when you're looking for it. So when it is mandatory, every staff member are trained and they are looking for it the same as they're looking for heart attack years ago or what we have said is rule out sepsis. So when they're part of the rule out sepsis, that means they're saying, well, how about those vital signs? And then if there are two or three of those that we mentioned earlier, they put them on antibiotics. They will put them on until they actually qualify that it is actually so. Very, very, very easy to implement and very easy to to, uh, to make mandatory. But, again, it has to be mandatory. Uh,
1: there was another question about, um, you know, where this sepsis protocol is to be applied, and I think you've actually answered that. Because it's now being taught in nursing schools, I'm sure that the, I would assume that uh, paramedics, uh, ambulance drivers, et cetera, are being made aware of it as well. Is that correct? Yeah,
6: as part, as part, of our, part of what we have done at state level, and we're having a forum here this week because what has come out of New York State mandatory regulations and the monitoring of them, we have seen where there are any weak links, we have seen where people are coming from, what area they're coming from. We are at, at, at our event on Monday, we have someone speaking to that area where people are coming from. and. We have cooperated nationally with the uh, pediatricians, the National Hospital Associations, and all of those also. But yes, everyone dealing with the the hospital, uh, everyone, the ambulance drivers, the the very first people, whether that be in a retirement home or, or otherwise, when they see it, they need to know, as is what we're doing with them. Remember, just a few years ago, people didn't know what the sign of a heart attack was because they couldn't tell. So we're at that today. We're at that medical emergency. If you know what it is, remember in this country, it's killing at least a quarter of a million Americans. So it's too important. But, again, it takes government to do it on one of these occasions.
1: Right, right. uh, There's a couple um, of questions about, uh, sepsis itself. And um, Margaret, are you uh, available to uh, comment on a couple of these more technical questions? Uh, sure. Oh. Uh, there, there's a question from a listener about uh, sequelae uh, after sepsis. Yes. Uh, and I think going along with that, and this is really coming from me as a survivor, mm-hmm. are the issues the longer term issues of uh, that um, of sepsis survivors, their health issues, which I know are currently being studied, but um, mm. I think we're just at really the beginning of the road there. Would you care to comment on that?
2: Certainly. Um, and uh, may I just start by saying um, how uh, moving all of these stories have been and, and how generous for each of you to... Come online and and share them with so many people because obviously some of these events are still very fresh, and it's got to be agonizing, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the sequelae uh, for sepsis um, uh, really can be sort of compartmentalized or or, uh, thought of in terms of uh, brain dysfunction, uh, the main sequelae, muscle and nerve, in terms of long-term problems. Um, Folks may have other sort of solid organ dysfunction, but the main um, issues relate to uh, these functional sequelae, where in terms of brain function, and this is on average, uh, some patients will typically have some difficulties with uh, memory concentration, um, attention, and executive function, meaning ability to organize. This is a higher-level cognitive function. Uh, And sometimes that executive dysfunction can be a real barrier in terms of returning to work depending on what you did for a living. Um, The muscle injury is related to uh, an increase in uh, proteolysis or muscle breakdown, which is part of the body's uh, normal stress response. Um, It's really aggravated or exacerbated by extreme sepsis, but also just global inflammation, similarly to similar to what you might experience, say, if you uh, you were a victim of polytrauma, you know, in a very bad trauma episode. That isn't sepsis per se, but a lot of the inflammation is not dissimilar. And the muscle will degrade and uh, degrade very rapidly. um, And uh, the patient's ability to regain muscle and recover muscle bulk and contractile force or power can be quite variable. Um, depends on how old people are. Um, it depends on genetic factors, and it may in large part depend on how much access people have to excellent uh, rehabilitation, and, and that means longitudinal rehabilitation. The nerve injury in the peripheral nerves is also important and people will have um, injury to the nerves uh, that is uh, a manifestation of disrupted blood supply and inflammation as well A nerve injury can be um, uh, very problematic, go on for years, may have complete or incomplete resolution. So the brain, uh, muscle, and nerve are the major sequelae or consequences that have the most functional, um, I would say, eloquence or, or relevance um, to quality of life and how people are able to reintegrate back into the life that they had before all of this happened. Uh,
1: thanks so much, uh, Margaret. That's uh, uh, a great explanation. Um, I think that we have covered most of the questions that have come up. I just want to say that looking at the comments, how appreciative our audience has been of everyone's participation. And uh, just coming back to your remarks, Margaret, about uh, the people on the panel telling their stories and sharing sharing them with us and working towards our goals of uh, reducing the burden of sepsis. Uh, so... Uh, does anyone have any closing remarks they would like to make before we uh, wind up the session and leave it to our listeners to um, move on? Here is Matthias. I yes. would like to invite the Global Sepsis Alliance
7: to become a supporting member of the International Alliance of Patient Organizations. I think we need you there. Uh,
1: just uh, I believe we're cooperating with uh, you and the World Health Organization to have is designated as a World Health Day, and there has been communication, um, but uh, Conrad and I and you can talk about that uh, in the near future, and thank you for the invitation. Thank and thanks again, everyone. I think we'll now wind up. Thank you to the technical people, to Conrad, to Reinhold, and Marvin Zick for the uh, the, all of the hard work that they've mm. done to uh, arrange this Congress. Goodbye, everybody. Yes.
2: Yeah. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Goodbye.
1: Bye. Thank you.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Part 1 on November 18th. I hope I hear you there. Oh,